Satoshi, uh, I think, you know, encouraged or, or you know, it, it sort of like tapped into some people's really deep frustrations with um, the financial world and, and how banks operate. And, you know, some people want to be completely outside of that whole system. And for the first time, Bitcoin gave that option to them. And I think Ethereum and other, other smart contracts are giving people the option to do a lot more, like, in, you know, and to, to lend and to borrow and to create NFTs and to raise money for your project through an ICO, you know, which is like, those are all very core um, applications that, that a bank existed for, for so many centuries. But now crypto is giving people an alternative way to go about that stuff. So that's what I find fascinating and, and really interesting. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together, twice a week, you and I, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders, brilliant people in the room, those who have been around for a very long time in it, observing, building, doing all sorts of things to truly understand how the movement came to be, where we are right now in this moment. And I feel like every time we ask that question over the last four years, it's always different. And where we're going in the future, and we end up predicting where we end up going. So it's a lot of fun. You guys are in for a real treat today. Today on the show, we have Matt Leasing. Matt, thank you. Did I pronounce your last name the right way? That's Lysing. Lysing. Oh my, the Close. one time I didn't <laughs> ask before the show started was the time that I screwed it up. But it's like the story of my life. Matt Lysing, yeah, thank no, you so no much worries. for coming on the show today. You've been in the space a long time. You've started off as a reporter since 2001. And for the past 17 years, you've been with Bloomberg News. You began covering crypto in 2015. You covered the Dow, which was the huge experiment back in the early days of Ethereum, where like $55 million was hacked in, in 2016. You wrote a book, a super cool book called Out of the Ether in 2020. It's a top-selling book. The Amazing Story of Ethereum and the Dow that almost destroyed it all, the $55 million heist. You also founded a really cool company now called Dissential. What really excited me over the weekend getting into the details of the show is that we're doing the same thing. You and I are like committed right on your website. You have, you're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating the new decentralized economy and internet experience. And you're right. You're right. How fun is it? I feel like I'm jealous because you actually got the book published, which I'm still trying to do. So any advice I would love. And you were just okay. at ETH Denver. There's a lot of stuff happening there. How are you feeling? Are you excited going into like 2023? Yeah, thank you for that kind intro. And um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the show and of you in general. Thank you. I'm pretty excited. I'm, I'm getting a little um, concerned about the banking issues. Um, you know, they seem to be coming closer and closer um, to to large uh, kind of institutional yeah. players like Gemini and Coinbase. So that's a concern. And I, I don't like the way that it seems to be carried out, like kind of like in these back channels where nobody's really telling us what's going on. It's just that Coinbase says it's not going to support US dollar coin anymore. And then JP Morgan pulls out of Gemini. And, you know, there's many other examples. So that to me... It feels a little nefarious and and has given me kind of pause. You're right, though. I was just at ETH Denver, and you cannot come away from ETH Denver in 2023 without like this huge boost of adrenaline and enthusiasm because you would never have known from inside the walls of that conference that you know all this regulatory stuff is happening and oh that the, you know the bear market kind of persists. The amount of 
enthusiasm and building and just exploration and uh the, you know the eth community has always been weird and and strong and and it's great to be back you know and see that in person again so um i hadn't been since 2019 and man it is just like night and day between those two years other than that I, i'm i'm really excited to see what comes out of this bear market you know like a lot of things come out of bear markets like defi summer and you know yeah. collateralized lending and stuff like that yeah. and in years past even the nft kind of craze you know it came out of this, these doldrums and kind of pulled the whole market with it so i'm fascinated to see where it's coming from like i don't know if you have any thoughts of like what might be coming out of this one and what area that you know is going to be sort of like the shiny new thing but that's something that i'm really looking forward to seems like the difference now than all the other bull and bear markets that we've had is during this last one that we just went through or are still going through to some extent right or whatever it could be longer who knows but whatever we're in now whatever we call it because hindsight is 2020. It's a lot easier that we could talk about it once Bitcoin's back, you know, over 100K and Ethereum's over 10,000 and everything's back to normal. But whatever we're in now, it seems like what's different than the other dozen or so Bitcoin bubble and bursts that I've been through is that nothing changed much in crypto land, meaning that like the on-chain activity, if you will, people in the metaverse, on-chain activity in half of the blockchains that we have on the show and Anyone can go on DeFi Llama or different websites and, and check out the different statistics. These blockchains have actually grown over the last six months to nine months. Activities, applications, cool services. I mean, just thank you for, for talking about the show. If you just go listen to the last 20 or 30 episodes, these are really cool applications that you can use now that just complementary value add to your life using a blockchain or crypto or some sort of like decentralized finance mechanism or not, or it's like education or something cool. But there's so much going on. And I just feel like maybe what happened, which always happens, was we got too ahead of ourselves, but we're finally catching up. And it's almost like now we're at the point where our prices are like artificially kept depressed. They, there's like this, you know, operation choke point. What happened in Bitcoin and crypto in the last six to nine months is we saw this like choking off of all bank accounts from different exchanges. We saw all the fear, uncertainty, doubt around Tether and, and USDC and all these other tokens. We saw regulation by enforcement. We saw like a really nasty negative approach to our industry that was so like dirty and secretive. And it's like, why? It didn't make sense. But like, like you said, East Denver, shrug it off. They shrug it off. And it's like, they don't care. And, and I never thought that I'd live in a world that wiring money to Europe and then buying crypto there is easier and safer than doing it in the U.S., it's a shit show out here. Like, who knew? Yeah. Here's my time. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I agree with you 100%. And I, I think the number of centralized failures we saw last year in crypto, um, you know, really the, the shockwaves are still being felt for sure. Yeah. And I think FTX was obviously the worst. And Sam Bankman-Fried had, you know, spread a lot of money around DC, a lot of influence. Um, he's, you know, now a lot of politicians have like, you know, dirty hands and they're going to overreact. And I think that's what's going on. And so what I wish is that they'd hold some hearings, you know, and like do this opening in that's Congress a good and idea. talk about, that's you know, a good idea. You know, they do do hearings from time to time, but I don't, you know, they, they really should address this issue in the, in open, you know, in the open public kind of sphere and, and talk about, what needs to be done? You could have people from both sides come and speak. And, you know, it would just feel much better than Gary Gensler kind of like, you know, sneaking these, you know, like lawsuits against people and, and stuff. And that's how you have to like 
um, you know, navigate this world right now. That doesn't feel right to me. And I know um, I speak to these folks all the time. There's a lot of really great companies in the United States that want to play by the rules. They just don't know what they are. And that's, that's a real problem here. So I hope Congress gets its act together. I hope, you know, the Fed and everybody can kind of start working again so that it yeah. isn't the case that wiring your money to Europe is easier. Uh, that's, that's not what, you know, that's not what this is all about. So it's oh. just getting so far afield of what the original intention was. You know, it's interesting that it doesn't seem to do us any good. The regulatory actions have just come like after the fact. So none of their operations is actually like helping in any way. Like they didn't know FTX was going to fail. They didn't know these banks were going to start failing before they did. They didn't know Celsius and everything. And like how many licenses and, and regulatory compliance fees did these companies pay to different regulatory? But like for what? All for nothing. Same thing with the banks. Like it's one thing if like we trust these institutions and they work. There's just a lack of, there's no, no one supervising the supervisors for some reason. Like there's no one supervising these agencies that just go rogue. And there's no hearings. Like you said, there needs to be hearings and they need to figure out ways to bring this out into the open instead of like, you know, the one the one thing I will have to hand it to a lot of these senators and stuff who are constantly, you know, banging on their gavels for these hearings is that like they they do kind of work or whatever. No one wants to get put in front of, you know, on live TV and any industry when they have to do it. It almost reigns them in. I did want to ask you a question on the journalism side of things, though. And maybe my bias is showing here a little bit, but I feel like we've done a decent job as an industry of like policing ourselves. And what I mean by that is like, hey, Coindesk was the one who found all the FTX stuff. You know, they were the mm -hmm. one who toppled the Ponzi scheme there. Same thing with half the other ones. Ryan Selkis was the one who brought down Mount Gox in 2014. I'm sure you were involved in many, in many big impactful pieces. Do you think as an industry, we like self-clean ourselves? It's funny you mentioned Ryan because I was just thinking I would love to see him at a congressional hearing, wouldn't you? He's he'd be you know, perfect. Making a case he's for crypto. so brilliant. It would be amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's he is great, and it would be perfect. Yeah, I think it's doing a good job. You know, I think the the journalism side of the industry is definitely growing up. Uh, I think you know, just a few years ago, it still had a very trade press feel to it. You yeah. know, very insidery and sort of like you weren't sure about where the conflicts might lie, you know, because that's kind of always the issue with trade press. Um, but I think Coindesk has grown more independent. Um, they, they were, you know, um, and I think we've seen some other kind of scandals come out with decrypt and stuff with um, some of the FTX links. And so I think, I think as the industry gets bigger, that's more people are relying on good independent journalism. And that's something that we're definitely trying to do at Decentral. Um, you know, we don't have ties to the industry and, I think it can be really hard as a reporter um, in crypto because, you know, a lot of times projects are very insular. And you, if you don't know the people who are like actually making the decisions, it can be very difficult to get good information on. Interesting. Know, name any project out there. So when I was covering Wall Street, you know, there was like a ton of people you could find that were firsthand sources for stories. You know, there, a lot of banks were involved. There would be lawyers, there would be, you know, PR people. So it was a much bigger kind of ecosystem where you could get scoops and find out stuff and, and verify it with a secondary source that's independent. And so what I found really quickly when I switched over to crypto is like, that's really hard here because, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk there. There might be hard to get to, or they're just putting their shit on Twitter. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like they're either one way or the other. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, area to cover. But I do agree with you. I think it's getting better. And, and I hope that that trend continues. 
That's a really interesting. That's a very interesting tidbit of knowledge that that anyone who's not a journalist didn't really understand about you know writing stories. What other like cool little tidbits of knowledge? Because your world was completely different than ones that we understand. Yeah, I think um, on the downside here, I think that the there's still a lot of companies that think they can pay you to write a story, you know, and like that's how it's done. I think that's more prevalent in Asia. Um, we've got some reporters over uh, in Singapore and Hong Kong, and that's sort of like it's not that big a deal over there. Whereas obviously in the United States, that's totally like verboten. Yeah. Um, so you know, th- there's still a little bit of that like pay to play. Uh, it's you know, there's also you know, you got to be a good reporter. Like the thing I've always said is knowing what you're writing about is, is almost most important so that you can determine when somebody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes, you know? So you know enough to, to know that somebody's like just spouting bullshit. And, and so there's a lot of those folks in crypto, you know, so you really need to be careful about like, you need to know your stuff so that if they're talking about some new blockchain, that's going to, you know, be the next Ethereum killer, you know, you need to know that history and you need to know like, to be able to read a white paper or to, you know, understand the specs enough to um, get a sense of like, yeah, these guys are just, you know, looking for free publicity and this is most likely a scam, you know? So that, that doesn't happen too often, but it definitely does happen. And it's it's certainly not something that I remember running across very often in um, the traditional financial world. Like there were some some scams and, and frauds that we uncovered when I was at Bloomberg, but it's it's much more rare, I think, in that world. So you know, uh, but other than that, it's it's not that much different um, as long as you understand the technology enough to, you know, be able to explain it to readers. And as long as you get out there and, and make, you know, meet people and, and create sources and, and build trust with folks, you know, all that stuff is is, is the same as, as, you know, what I was doing previously. So do you think like our industry needs like better spokespeople? Yeah. Talk and explain these I concepts? Think, I Yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you're, Right. And saying that there's a lot of stuff out there that's going on that you can be doing at any given day. Right. But yeah. it still hasn't made it through to the mainstream by any stretch. Right. Uh, it's still way too um, risky and scary for people to open a wallet and have your private key and, you know, don't lose that key or everything's gone. You know, yeah. it's like you don't really run across this um, user experience almost in any other thing in daily life in, in the United States. You know, most things are made to be like ridiculously, stupidly convenient. Right. And that's just like the lowest common denominator kind of thing. So that's got to improve. And, and I'm, I don't know when that's going to happen though. You know, like yeah. I, I know public key, private key management is, is, a, is a key thing here to this whole industry, but somebody has got to come up with some solution that makes it less terrifying, you know, and like lot just easier. So I, I think ENS is a step in that direction, but I think there needs to be more privacy. So I wish there was more building in that area of yeah. just like the basic infrastructure that's what we're and architecture of it. Yeah, that's what we're seeing this, yeah. the biggest struggle is like even the wallet experience or the different type of experiences that you have, it still feels very like old web style. It doesn't feel like new, like yeah. a next step up. But yeah, tell me about putting together your book. You know, earlier I was saying, you know, did you put a treatment together? Did you then get a publisher? How did you get to from like the chicken and egg problem? Yeah. Yeah. So while I was still at Bloomberg, is uh, the DAO happened, the DAO hack. And I didn't write about it like in real time, but I was fascinated by it. And it just seemed like, cause I was, you know, I had just gotten um, sort of into Ethereum or, or starting to learn about it when the hack occurred in June of uh, 2016. 
So I just kind of followed it from afar. I think Ethereum at that point wasn't big enough to really be writing about at Bloomberg because yep. there wasn't really any applications. Like the DAO was really the only thing going except for the price of the coin. So it wasn't like I was missing out, but I, I kept <laughs> an eye on it. And then later that year, the Bloomberg Markets Magazine always does a heist issue where they write we write about different heists, oh, okay. you know, like bank robberies and cool stuff. So very interesting. I knew the editor there really well, and he came to me and said, "Hey, do you have any good heist stories?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I got a good one." <laughs> um, so so I pitched him on the Dow, and he said, "Yeah, go for it." And like so, I got to report on that for hmm, good two or three months. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of the um, the white hat hackers that kind of yep. came to the rescue and made sure that the rest of the money in the Dow didn't, didn't get stolen. So I got to know them pretty well. You know, I already knew Vitalik and I spoke to him and, you know, I knew Joe Lupin and it, it just was like the most fun that I'd ever had on the beat. And I just loved the story and I still do. And I think it's just like science fiction. What a great story. Like if you, yeah. If you tried to make this up, nobody would believe no. it. And it's funny that when I got out of prison, the first time that I had heard about crypto at any point, cause I was like, when I got out, I didn't, I was like a little bit institutionalized and kind of weird. So I didn't have a smartphone and I worked at this restaurant and I was literally just picking up eggs at an Amish farm and I heard on the radio about like this Dow on Ethereum. And I'm like, I better like turn on a computer. And this is like three months <laughs> I'm out because it sounds like Rome is burning or something. Yeah. Or something. And yeah, uh, it was, yeah. What happened? Like for it, those listeners, I mean, you definitely should read the book. As you're framing, as you're telling, you know, the overview of the story, like why do you think a lot of people say that it was like, the best thing that ever happened to Ethereum very early on? I think it showed the, the promise of Ethereum and, and smart contract platforms in general, because you, you took something that existed in the real world, like venture capital, basically, right? You go to a VC fund, you pitch them to get money for your startup so that you can pay the bills and, and create whatever you're trying to create. Here, the DAO took that and digitized it and put it on a blockchain yeah. and said, here, you're going to come to the DAO, you make a proposal, and the members of the DAO will vote. And if you get approved, then you get some of our treasury, and you can go away and make your thing. So it's, you know, much more democratic. Uh, you know, there's there's a ton of money, you know, they, they had $250 million in their treasury when it was hacked, you know, so, and it was like kind of like the ethos of Ethereum. It's like, everyone yeah. has a chance here. Like, it's all, you know, it's like meritocratic. So, I, I love that. And I think it, it was a fantastic idea. I think it came too early. Solidity as a language wasn't even a year old, I think. Um, Ethereum wasn't even a year old. And there were just, there were a ton of bugs in the software. Oh, yeah. The hack that occurred. No, nobody found the hack until it was too late. But there were other like 12 or 13 other big security issues that people identified before it went live. But they decided, you know, let's just keep it going because everybody had their ether in there and everybody wanted it to succeed. And then, so it gets hacked and it's like a really elegant hack. Like it's this two-step process and it's just like a gorgeous like, piece so, of yeah, programming. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing what they did. They're using some of the stolen funds to like fund the next attack. And it's just like the cycle that keeps churning. And <laughs> unfortunately, you know, no, like it broke, you know, which is good because like the whole treasury could have been drained and nobody could have done anything. So what I did, I wrote the magazine story. It came out and everybody really liked it. I, I had a great time doing it. It was called The Ether Thief. I think that helped me within the people who were involved with the DAO because they saw what, you know, the product of the story was and that they could trust me. So I used the story to as the springboard for a book proposal and went out and, and wrote a book proposal and said, here, I've, I've already got this sort of part of the story and I want to like use this throughout the whole book. But then 
in other chapters tell the story of Ethereum and tell the story of Italic and where, where he came from and, and the people he gathered around him as co-founders to create Ethereum. And then the struggles that, you know, the DAO and the, the, the fork and everything, you know? So it, it was, it was tough because, you know, back then in 2017, 2018, it was, you know, publishers were sort of like, what, what the hell is this thing? You know, like, yeah. They, they didn't quite get it. And so I, I went around to a lot. Of, I, I ended up getting an agent, which was lucky. But then we struck out at almost every publisher except for Wiley. And they they decided to pick it up. So um, yeah. they do sort of like more technical books and sort of more like business books. So this isn't like Random House, you know, where they're publishing like huge novels by people. It's, it's sort of like on the technical side. You know, they gave me a lot of freedom. And, and so then I was able to just like really dive in and tell the entire story. Ended up interviewing Vitalik probably a dozen times. So maybe like 12 hours worth of interviews on the record. And, and I went out to all the other co-founders and everybody I knew in the space and just, you know, had a wonderful, it was, it was a blast. I just loved it. And then I was able to write the book in about two months. Like I had so much great material by the time I'd done all the reporting that it just like spilled out of me. So it was, it was really something that um, I, I just got super lucky and loved that whole process. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in... 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges, that we all are going to face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. Wow, that's such such a beautiful thing. And then you put it out there and people are reading it and, and, and learning about everything that happened. Yeah, the story of how Ethereum was founded is just like another great story to all the, all the early people and I go back and look at some of the Skypes. I go back and look at all these early Skypes I had with Vitalik because the early Bitcoin community, we were on Skype mostly and then IRC. And Vitalik mm. was very much a part of the early Bitcoin community. And yeah. we had this like um, Skype channel called, shit, I'm forgetting its name. It was like the Bitcoin Business Association or something like that. And it was just not, <laughs> a, it was a Skype group. There was no, we never associated. But it was like all the early Bitcoin people were there and Vitalik was there. It was cool that Vitalik was that like, he wrote for Bitcoin magazine, but he very early declared his bias in like favor of this digital finance future. You know, he wasn't like mm -hmm. you were writing from like an observer view about us without bias. 
And then he's like writing about in Bitcoin. He's the reason Bitcoin Magazine actually existed. His eloquent writing was the reason Bitcoin Magazine mm -hmm. was the first issue. I have it in my uh, in on framed on my wall. Actually, the first issue of Bitcoin Magazine because my ad is on the back of it. The Bit oh, Instant yeah. ad, our company. The one with um, yeah, the one with uh, yeah, Guy Fox, Guy Fox, and um, Vitalik. Yeah. Yeah, you know that was Mihai. That was Mihai Alisi, the co-founder. He was the guy. Oh, I didn't know that was there. him in the mask, actually. Oh shit! Yeah, I learn something him. new every day. Yeah, they couldn't. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. like thanks yeah, for that they, knowledge. They couldn't. I think they had some model lined up or something, and then they fell through. But they had to get the cover done, so they just like Roxana, his girlfriend at the time, took that picture of him. Yeah. That's a great yeah. story. So, yeah. at what point did you develop your love for decentralized finance? that you had to like kind of drop your journalist hat to start a crypto company? Well, it came from the book because uh, there were, you know, I had already met a ton of people in crypto. And as you know, they're all really interesting and weird <laughs> and, and usually funny, but usually very kind of off. And like, I love them. And, they, and they're just like, there's just a million stories out there to tell about these characters. And so I didn't feel that the press and the crypto side of things was doing that well enough. You know, there are some places that are doing these features and things, but I really wanted to focus on the people that are making this stuff a reality because they're just fascinating and weird and funny. And you're coming from all walks of life, you know, and like their backstories are just like, I love hearing about their backstories and like, how did you get into crypto? And so that was the real impetus because I believed in the technology. You know, I, I realized pretty early when I was covering Wall Street that like, Wall Street is just yeah. a big network, you know, the banks, the investments, the hedge funds, all these folks are connected. It's just kind of a shitty network, you know, it's not very fast and it's, it makes mistakes, but a blockchain is no different, you know, it's a network. And and so that made sense to me early on and I, I could see how this was going to take off and how it could improve lots of different industries as we're seeing, you know, as the years go by. But I thought that a lot of it was too tech focused and I think yeah. that turns people off and I want to try to like spread adoption. So if I can tell you a really interesting story about Griff Green or, Love Griff. Take, you know, any, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, you know, any other like 50 other people, you know, that I could name, then I might be able to tell you about what an NFT is or like what's a public good, you know, or why should crypto be, you know, helping in charitable world, you know, so I think that's a really good entry point and that's what we're really focusing on and, and just trying to like celebrate almost the people who are doing this because I think they're amazing and uh, I don't think they get You're enough. preaching to the choir. The What's that? The name of this show for the first like three years was called Untold Stories yeah. just because I feel like when you tell people yeah, and that's all we really have because most of the, the we're not like technical people or we're not finance people. We were like misfits. So we learn from ourselves and within our own industry. So sometimes the stories are the best way to like uh, explain it to people. Yeah. But you mentioned Griff for a second there. And then earlier you talked about these white hat hackers. Yeah. And then you were telling the story of the DAO. What happened there? Was there, there were some hackers that actually saved the money and yeah. people were able to get their money back? Yeah, because it was a smart contract on Ethereum, the DAO itself. It, 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 it takes a long time to fix it or change it, right? You have to go through a proposal and like you have to vote on or you have to get people to update the software basically to update their ethereum client to a, a, yeah. a version that has a different DAO in it so that takes a lot of time and that's why i was saying people were watching this money just walk out the door and there was nothing they could do about it at the time there was about 250 million dollars worth of ether when the hack started 
the hacker got about 55 million and then the the con like the way he was stealing it broke and and it, it didn't come back like so it stopped so just to like i know ether dropped in, in price but let's just say that there's 200 million left <laughs> you're laughing <laughs> so anyway like you know like everyone in that was smart in ethereum now could go to the attack contract and be like oh this is how he did it this is amazing and they could have replicated it because it's all public right the money's just sitting there and so these guys like Griff Green and, and Alex Van de Sand and Jordi Bailina and, you know, um, Left Terrace, like all these like really smart guys knew that they had to do something like because the, there was just this pot of money sitting there and there was like a roadmap of how to steal it. So they got together and they they had a Skype channel and they called it the Robin Hood Group. That's where that name comes from because they were like, we're going to go steal from the rich and give to the poor. You know, It was on Skype. So they all like figured it out really quickly. You, you know, they kind of spun up their own attack contract, but they were really nervous about doing this because they didn't know if they were like breaking the law. They didn't know like the legal ramifications. So they were like terrified. But so the, the hack happened on a Friday. Then on that next Monday, like a copycat attack started and it was like real. Like there had been some other copycats that were just sort of testing the waters, but this is a real hack. And so they knew they had to like, they, they had to act now or, or you know, more ether was going to get stolen. It would all be gone. Yeah. yeah. So they they went into like attack mode themselves and were able to clear out the, the treasury within a, a matter of hours because they just had, it's complicated, but they had like... They were the early Ethereum developers too. Some of these guys were mm -hmm. friends with the overlap between the early founders and then some of those folks that you mentioned and the others, they were like very, very, very good friends. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the relationship there of being able to message the people who coded Ethereum probably helped. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a very tight-knit community at that point. Um, and like Christoph Jentz, who founded Slocket, which was the company that created the DAO, had, be, had yeah. been a really important person in Ethereum where he was the guy that was like trying to break the contracts. Yeah. Like he was doing everything he could to like test your code and make sure. And wasn't like Stefan one of the like the spokespeople for Ethereum or something like that? Yep. Also that they created yep. the career? Yeah, he was at Slocket as well. Griff Green, I think, was like their first employee at Slocket. So he was like... I have to go read your book. <laughs> I can't believe I haven't read it. There's, this story is so fascinating. You're I, in there a couple times, actually. Did you know that? I mentioned again? you a couple times in there. Um, oh, really? One is... Good or bad? Well, the... <laughs> Probably bad from your I'm point of view because I, I mentioned. When did I you mention? Like no, it's fine. I was trying to set the scene for the Miami Bitcoin conference in 2013 when Vitalik was going to present his white paper for the first time, and that's when you got arrested. At was it JFK or? I yeah, I was at JFK. Yeah, and because you were coming to Which Miami, I may have your book in my library here. You were coming to Miami, right? Because I think someone sent me your book. Okay. When I was in jail, no, you you didn't. You released it. It came out in like 2020. 2020. So yeah. no, but I may have it here somewhere. But yes, you were setting the stage. So I was I was arrested uh, at JFK Airport the night and route that to I was Miami. supposed to like route right. to Miami to speak yeah. the next day. Yeah, right. yeah. So I was just sort of setting the scene of like what was going on in crypto at that time, and so I, I mentioned that whole saga. And you know, the other thing was that people didn't know you know, that Mt. Gox was being ripped off at that point, you know, like as they were, you know, at the conference. So anyway, yeah. but yeah, if you, if you don't have a copy, I'll send you one. No, no problem. Just let me know. But yeah, it's just like the, the stories, you know, these, these sort of stories are just everywhere. You know, you don't have to, you can just like throw a rock and hit somebody in crypto and they've got an amazing story like this. So that's, that's There's so like, many stories. what I love about it. And um, as a reporter and a writer, like characters are what you want, you know? And so this, this, 
industry is just chock full of them. So it's it's like being a kid in a candy store sometimes. Yeah, you can write a whole book of just like mini mini stories. Yeah, for sure. And then and then produce them. It's like some sort of like TV series or something like that, like the untold stories. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing with the podcast episode. We've been doing the stories that we've had in the past three hundred and your number fifty eight, three hundred and fifty eight wow. episodes. That's amazing. I mean, just your story is amazing, and the people that you probably touched and and talked to and met. And then in the future, like ten or twenty, thirty years from now. Our industry, I think, will have, you know, we were the first new industry of the tech age. Not only that, I would argue that the religion of Satoshi, that it'll be known in the future, is like the first modern day religion. Like, what else do you call what we're even talking about? Like, from a cultural tradition point of view, like a moral compass or pillars to guide you in life. Wouldn't you argue that, like, following, you know, what Satoshi and what the early Bitcoin and crypto community means you can kind of find a religion in that. Yeah, and that's something that definitely struck me at East Denver. Um, there, there is a bit of religious fervor to it and belief. You know, there's a very strong belief that that these folks have that Satoshi, uh, I think, you know, encouraged or, or you know, it, it sort of like tapped into some people's really deep frustrations with um, the financial world and and how banks operate. And you know, some people want to be completely outside of that whole system. And for the first time, Bitcoin gave that option to them. And I think Ethereum and other other smart contracts are giving people the option to do a lot more, like into you know, and to to lend and to borrow and to create NFTs and to raise money for your project through an ICO, you know, which is like those are all very core um applications that, that a bank existed for for so many centuries. But now Crypto is giving people an alternative way to go about that stuff. So that's what I find fascinating and, and really interesting. I don't think Bitcoin is going to replace the dollar. I don't think Ethereum is going to replace Wall Street, but it gives people an alternative if they want one. You know, And I think Web3 is, is going to be the same thing. Like It's not going to be the death of Facebook or Meta or whatever, but it's going to be an alternative for people who care about their privacy and, and want you know a different internet experience. Do you think you fell in love with the... With the like, I'm okay. To, I'm a religious zealot for 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 this. If if this thing is ever religion, like I love it. But do you think that a lot of times people tell me that they sit and they talk to to someone like me, or we spend a weekend together, and they like fall down the rabbit hole and they're completely converted? Was it Vitalik? Was it your your hours of chats with him? Like, were you out to sit and you don't have to rush and you're able to ask him very deep questions? Like, what did you? What was your favorite question? Was he the person who you think helped you over that that edge? No, I was over the edge by then because, you know, I'm writing a book about it and oh, like even the, better. the history of it. And so I, I was all in. A couple of things like Joe Lubin, uh, who founded Consensus, and he was a, also an Ethereum co-founder. He was in Brooklyn when I was in New York City, and I went over and visited him in Consensus pretty early. And he kind of blew my mind with the world computer talk. And like, I've, because I'd sort of understood the blockchain application as, as to uh, how it applied to Wall Street. But until Ethereum came around, I didn't quite get it for other stuff. And then Joe, I remember him talking to me in, in the office in, in Bushwick and it just really kind of clicked and the light bulb went off over my head. And I was like, holy shit, if yeah, this, this network is, is a very powerful thing, you can see how it you know empowers Bitcoin and it doesn't break. But then if you can put like a computer on top of that network, it's just like, that was like, oh yeah, now we're talking, you know, now the sky is the limit. Yeah. And, and that really got me interested. Um, and then, 
to answer your question about Vitalik, I think that what I really loved the most was, you know, you mentioned him, he co-founded Bitcoin Magazine and he loved Bitcoin and he was, he was trying to figure out if you could do more with Bitcoin, you know, like colored mm. coins and, and different types of projects. And so he went on these, remember the blog posts. Yeah. He, he went on these travels and like he went to, he went to the Freedom, you know, I can't remember what it's called in New Hampshire, you know, with Eric Voorhees. Pork Fest, uh, the, yeah, yeah. the Freedom, no, the, uh, the conference that in Ashwa, the, uh, yeah. I think it's the, Pork Fest, right? Pork Fest was one in August. Oh, okay. Did he go to the, there's two. I was a big part of that community too. Pork Fest was like the first time that you could use Bitcoin yeah, in like yeah, exactly. in real life in the campgrounds. Yeah. So he went there and then he went over to Europe and traveled and sort of met in real life, all these like really important people in the Bitcoin world. And he was sending emails home to his parents and friends at the time. And he shared a bunch of those emails with me, which was amazing because it's like, I wonder if he wrote about the one, the time that him and I tried lobster for the first time together. I think he did. Yeah. Were you in Hong Kong with him? Or? No, we were in New okay. York. Okay. I can't remember. Uh, it doesn't matter, but that's, but yeah, but, the email. Like just the fact that he gave me his emails, you know, so that I had like, like, you know, in the time that he was doing all this, his thoughts and his feelings and, and like he was, you know, expressing doubts about what he was doing and he didn't know if it was going to work and all this great stuff was like, that was really something that I think gave the book a lot of depth and like really helped round him out as a human being because, you know, He's obviously incredibly smart. He he comes off a little, you know, I don't like robotic, you know, and, and, but man, he's funny. Mm. He's amazing. He's an amazing writer. Like you said, he's actually really brilliant in like all subjects. He's not just like super smart on the computer science side. He was acing his calculus, his Latin, his Greek in, in high school, like his English professor. Like I talked to his English teacher. She still raves about him. And like the dude is like, he's, he's, um, you know, a, a man of all trades, you know, he's uh, what do you call that? Um, he's a, uh, a Renaissance man, you know, he's like, yeah, he's yeah. Run, definitely a modern, modern day Renaissance. Yeah, so man. That, that was something he gave us the theory. Yeah, that was something that really, I thought was, you know, very generous, generous of him, very trusting, but also just really helped me get like into his mind, which can be hard, you know, and you want to kind of get into the character's mind uh, as you're telling a story like this. Sometimes for fun, I go back to Bitcoin Magazine and I read the early articles that he wrote. And he was he was quite critical of me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for good reason. And, compliment, and I'm going to give him a compliment here is that like, again, his bias was that like he was just in love with Bitcoin. Yeah. And when he was critical of me, it was because Ben Instant took cash and sold people Bitcoin and then also took their, their Bitcoin and, and gave them dollars back. And he just always in the articles made it a point where at some point in the article, he wasn't just like explaining, he was handholding the reader mm. and making and saying like, but now make sure you know that not your keys, not your coins, yeah. or don't trust verify. He was like making sure that you understood that there was nothing crypto or decentralized about what my company was. We were simply like a way to a, a fiat on an off ramp. And I wasn't trying to be anything else, but like he almost was going out of the way to make sure people understood these concepts in depth. Like he never shied away from like getting, diving deep into a concept and explaining it. Mm -hmm. And then like sometimes, sometimes I read these articles and I like roll my eyes back then. Now I'm like, it's like reading an article, you know, reading an article by an early, you know, or young Jesus or something like that. <laughs> like just a brilliant person. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He was fighting the good fight and it's, 
He was fighting the good fight. This is uh, yeah. this is frustrating to me too, but we still need this because people left their money at FTX. You know, like how many how many times do you need to be told, or like, are you not paying attention, or are you so brand new that you're leaving your stuff on an exchange? Because you, you know, I don't want to wish that on anybody that they lose their stuff, but like that's a great way to lose your no. stuff, you know. And like it, we don't learn. I you'll know. I've been in crypto thirteen years, the Bitcoin, whatever, yeah. for so long. I had money in Voyager, lost it, and the same guy who bought my Mount Gox bankruptcy claim bought my Voyager claim <laughs> like 12 years later. And he's like, I can see him on the other side of the computer. He's like, I told yeah, you so. Yeah. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> what do you got for me now? Hey, Charlie. It's me again. <laughs> yeah. That was the email. It's me again. I'm back. Yeah. Uh, crap. Uh, hey, well, at least Binance bought Voyager out. So that worked out pretty well for Voyager people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Another, I think CZ is just another also really brilliant. We, we're filled with a lot of really brilliant people because like you and I, we're, we're like, didn't fit in socially in the rest of the world maybe. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, industry required being able to be brilliant, the best doctor in the world or the best of best of best of anything to really like push the world forward. You had to be well-spoken, good looking from a certain pedigree, a certain family, from a certain place. We don't have to go through the list. But the early Bitcoin community and still crypto, it was always like, we don't care about any of those things. What do you bring to the table? How are you mm -hmm. making the world a better place? How are you making me more yeah. wealthy? How are you giving me more freedom or whatever? It doesn't matter. I don't care about any of the other like metrics or like things that could change the equal playing field. Nothing. It doesn't matter because when you're behind a computer screen, what you bring to the table is the only thing that you're judged on and nothing else. And that's what I fell in love with the early community too. Yeah. Yeah, you said it like it's the uh, even playing field. You know, this is all open source. This is all done in, in public. You know, this is this is not it's the antithesis of like backroom deals. You know, it's it's people trying to create a community. You know, you throw something up on on um, you know you, you know yeah commit stuff on you know GitHub or whatever, and just like it's all there, and people can just dive into it. And I think that's what is really attractive to a lot of people too when they when they realize that about this it's a great theme industry. to the episode is like the the whole transparency theme and everything like that but but matt thank you so much for for taking the time and, and coming on the show today i really appreciate it thank you charlie yeah this was an absolute pleasure really really enjoyed it and like i said big fan of yours thank you i'm gonna i don't send me a copy of the book i want to purchase it so i can contribute to the economy but you got to sign okay. it i need a signed copy so maybe you can send me one but check it out everyone out of the ether Get on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today and I'll talk to you soon. Great, thank you. 